tremendous privilege uh, to be here. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, my family uh, transferred churches from Highland Hills Presbyterian Church uh, to Covenant Presbyterian Church. The first Sunday that I was at Covenant Presbyterian Church, there was an announcement that Glenn McLean was coming to plant a church in North Lakeland. And that was the first time I heard about church planting. And um, through some difficult circumstances, Glenn never made it. And so there still has yet to be a church, uh, a PCA church in North Lakeland. Uh, the person on our staff or uh, on our team at uh, Trinity that was most vibrant and enthusiastic about planting a church in North Lakeland is my brother-in-law who passed away uh, early this year jogging. And I was mindful of how hard it is to plant churches. I was mindful that the discussion about planting a church in North Lakeland has greatly diminished uh, since the death of my uh, brother-in-law and that we need somebody to raise, God to raise up someone who has a great heart for North Lakeland. And then I had the privilege of praying with Ron Avery. One of the first times I ever got to meet with Ron and Kim, we talked about Lake Wales. We talked about Haines City. We talked about the Four Corners. And um, I am thrilled to be here because it reminds me of a meeting at a coffee house in Lakeland called Mitchell's with Terry Henderson, who Steve Scruggs, my friend, said, hey, there's a guy... Uh, that's a friend of mine in Winter Haven that's, that wants to talk about church planting. And it was 2003. Look at how quick we turned that around. Right? Mass production. Um, but I, uh, I love this topic for us today because um, the topic is on faith and God's faithfulness. And God has been faithful. And uh, while I was sitting down there singing, I just committed my life um, to that day when Ron and I will get to go and meet with the prayer teams of the churches in Haines City and get to meet before the worship service of the church uh, in Four Corners. And um, just like it is a miracle, y'all were he- y'all are here and I never saw it coming, so, it, so that will be a miracle. And um, what a great day that is. And I just want to encourage you in the good hard work you've engaged in here and, uh, and the good work God is doing and what He will do in your life. Uh, Jonathan was right in describing the word faithfulness, God's faithfulness to us. As we look at the passage that you guys have been preaching through, uh, look with me uh, to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's this word faithfulness that's in there that also describes what we want to sing to God about and also what um, he says we ought to be about doing. That we ought to be faithful and he is faithful. So what is that word and how does it work? Let's pray as we get into that discussion. Lord Jesus, um, we ask that you would attend to our hearts today. That where you work is in the living room of the soul. And man, just nobody gets in there. We're, we're not a people, and we ought not to be a people that just let anyone into the living room of our soul. But Lord Jesus, that is the place for You. That place in our hearts where we make decisions. That place in our hearts where the will is, where our soul is energized. Um, that's, where we're, that's where Christianity 
works and lives. <clears throat> That's where you live in us, in the living room of the soul. And I uh, pray that you would attend to us today and help us to think well, that we would think thoughts after you, that we would enjoy those thoughts. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, let me just warn you first about the danger of these words because they're so attractive. Love is attractive. We've never met anybody. You know, I wish my friend didn't love me better. Or uh, you never heard a spouse say, you know what, I wish my husband was more unfaithful. The danger of these words are that they're so good that you like them, that you naturally, in and of yourself, without the working of the Spirit, can be fond of these words. And so you can think then that they're yours. They are yours when the Spirit alivens them in your heart and they come out of you. But they, aren't, they are not yours just because you're fond of them. Ron, has a favorite, uh, Ron Avery has a favorite running book about one of his friend's father who runs till he's 108 or something. 100 and something. I read it. I liked it. It did not become mine. For some of you, uh, the Christian faith is still very similar to TomTom, um, Tom, one of those uh, GPS things that guide you around town. I just went to, I just drove to Wisconsin. You could give me any address in northern Wisconsin. I could plug it in, and it was like I was a homeboy. It was like I knew my way around. It was like I knew how to get there. I didn't. This machine did. But I don't want you to be frightened if you're new to the faith that, that the Christian life still feels like it sits on the surface. That it isn't all yours yet. Because one of the ways that a human being comes to learn is the first thing you know, and husbands really know this, or men really come to know this when they get married. The first thing is you realize when your wife is talking to you, you don't know that you don't know. Right? Then she begins to explain it to you. And you come to know, you know what? I know I don't know. Right? And then you begin to do it because you're supposed to. Right? I, be, I consciously then begin to walk in that behavior. And pretty soon, you're doing it unconsciously. That's the growth of knowledge. I mean, pretty soon, you're putting a new bag back in the trash can without even being told. I mean, it's stunning the work of the Spirit and how He can get things done. So I don't want you to be scared if it, it still seems like the faith is on the surface and it hasn't worked down deep roots into your soul. But I want you to know that it ought not to stay there. It's alright to, to come to this worship service and, and I'm very concerned because I'm not your pastor about uh, because the person who ought to dialogue with you on these deep things of the soul ought to be the person who is developing capital with you so that it, he wins you to the notion of the wonder of the love that God has for you. Well, we're going to get over that. Like my sister, I mean, like my daughter asked me the other day, I have a staff member who I need to encourage to pursue his undergraduate degree. The last degree I got was from Medell Elementary. So my, my daughter looked at me and said, Dad, aren't you going to be a hypocrite by requiring him to go get a degree that you don't have? 
And I said, no, any more than when I coach you and I make you run up and down the floor and I can't do it. There is an absurd notion in our culture that we can only require of those people we're training that which we know. My dad never believed in that. To love somebody is to call them to pursue that which is best. And that will always far exceed what I am. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to engage in that with me. I'm going to call you to a life that you may not know yet. I'm going to call you to a way of living that you might not know. The life of faith, the life of faith that we're going to talk about is a living upon the unseen, everlasting happiness purchased for us by Christ and all the necessities thereunto freely given to us by God. It's a living upon, it's an attachment to the unseen, everlasting happiness purchased for us by Christ. Freely, freely, and all the necessities thereunto freely given to us by God. Written by Pastor Richard Baxter in the 17th century. His other one was, the life of godliness is a life lived unto God and being totally addicted to Him. Now, the concern you ought to have is the, the last song that we sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to, uh, to the God in the highest. That was sung by both people while, while the people were singing that of Jesus as He comes into Jerusalem. He's weeping over Jerusalem's rebellion. So I just want, I want to encourage you to be willing to rethink about what we're going to talk about and see if it's truly yours. Alright? Be willing to rethink about the What's going on with the fruits of the Spirit? And say, am I a fruit bearer like that? Alright? So our first point, the thing I want to talk to you about, is what's the feel of faith? What does faith feel like? Think about that. If, I, if I'm living out the feel of faith, what does faith feel like? Well, the unseen everlasting happiness, well, you know, I'm going to be happy. What's the first feel of faith? Right? Unbelievable fear. Right? I, I kept saying, I, I don't get Christianity. It doesn't work for me. Christianity doesn't work for me. How come? Because I'm, when I see what God wants me to do, what He's requiring of me is more than I have to give. But that's the way He always works. He says to Adam and Eve, oh yeah, and bring dominion to the whole earth. Right? The initial feel of faith is the recognition that what I'm being asked to do is far greater than I have the ability to accomplish. And that's what causes us then to increase our faith. It, that's what causes us to then attach ourselves to God. God attaches Himself to us. The notion of faith is the notion of attachment. That's what, if I could bring faith down to one word for you, what it means is attachment. My view of faith was that the people were great in faith. If I knew Drew Bennett, I would think that the hum behind Drew Bennett's life was that song, Onward Christian Soldiers. You know, and that's what he felt all the time. You know, and I would think that the, uh, the feel of faith for me was you can't, you shouldn't, you won't. Right? But what we're going to talk about today, and what I want to leave with you is the way I preach or the way I think, so you're prepared, is I don't talk in doctrinal big ideas, um, I'm like a coach. Like when I coach my daughter who plays in the low post, she's tall. I have an idea where she gets that from. She's slow. 
I have a greater idea where she gets that from. And she doesn't jump very high. Two laws that Kristen and I are committed to. We don't move fast along the ground and we never leave it. So, she plays in a position where she is guarded by tall, jumping people. Right? So here's what you do. And I sit down with her and I tell all our little uh, the girls that play underneath the basket, here's the strategy. If you're playing against somebody and they're fat, here's what you do. You fake like you're going one way. Get them to move that fat that direction. And then you go the other way. Because they can't get that fat to come back. How do I know that? I've done a lot of research in fat movement. Right? So, that's what you do if they're fat. If they're athletic, and they can jump real high, just fake like you're going to shoot it. They jump real high, and while they're up there in the air, which we never are, we're right on the ground. You just move around them. Right? So they, we've taken care of people. Now, if they're good, that's a totally different experience. What you've got to do is get them to foul you. Because a person, you have five fouls, so once you get one foul, you get five fouls, and five fouls, and you're out. One foul, and you're about 90% of your ability. You kind of hold back a little bit. Two fouls, you're at 80%. And you got to be real, 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 real careful. I said, Kristen, your girl has two fouls on her. Be careful. Because if you get three fouls, what happens is they sub that girl out and bring in another girl that's better than you and you have to start all over. But there's a different strategy for different things. Faith is something specific. It is a tool. It is, it is something that you can know. It is something that you can exercise. It is something that you can understand. What did Moses feel like when he's got a sea on one side and Pharaoh coming behind him and the only thing between him and Pharaoh are this cloud and pillar of fire? Do you think he felt onward Christian soul? No. No, he didn't. The initial fail, feel of faith. And then you've got Abraham who takes Isaac up. And puts him, straps him on the altar. And this is why we know that Isaac was not a teenager. You know that biblically they, they come to understand that Isaac was a preteen because they said it was a sacrifice for Abraham to kill him. But Abraham raises that knife up. Right? The feel of faith for him was he did not know. God does not tell you what he's going to do. He wants to know that you're just into him for him. He wants you to know that what you're doing, my father's instruction to me, anything's up for question. You can ask me any question about anything I've ever asked you to do. Absolutely. I want you to know the basis behind why I ask you to do something, and, I, and I'm certainly not perfect, so I ought to have, there ought to be some reason for, to call into question that. As long as the next step that you take is in the direction of doing what I said, the way I said, when I said. But be sure and ask me about it. God's the same way. The problem is, we as an adult think that that's appropriate for God to us. Or us to our children. But we don't think that's appropriate for God to us. And as you plant this church, what He is going to do is He's going to ask you to do far greater works and acts than you have the energy to accomplish. And He's going to put you in predicaments where you have to attach yourself to Him and to His energy. How does that work? I want to talk to you about the value. The first thing is the feel of faith. I just want you to know that the, the initial feel of faith 
is like when your parents would wake you up in the morning and they'd pull all the covers off and all of a sudden just that cold air comes on you. The initial feel of faith is I'm being asked to do something I can't do. Which, the reason why evangelism works is if you will have them read the Scriptures, if you will invite your friends to read the Scriptures, they will come in contact with the Word of God that will set out requirements for them that they cannot meet. And they will feel that the requirements are above them. And then they will cry out for help. What that's called is a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith is when my resources will not solve the problems that I have and I have to go to an outside source. My brother and I, when we built houses, we had a crisis of faith when we needed to dig a footer because neither one of us knew how, so we called someone. We had a crisis of faith when we needed plumbing in the home. We were home builders, so we called someone. Faith is that notion of subcontracting out, calling out to a source who can come and help you accomplish what it is that He has called you to do. Now, I want to talk to you about the value of a good deed. Think of the last time you were up against it. Moms, when the kid you had at the dentist, the dentist was taking too long and the school was letting out. And the dentist and the school were not sinking together. So your kid is going to be left at school. And, and, and so you called one of your friends and they picked them up. And they bailed you out. Think of what that good deed meant. Think of the last time, dads, you forgot your wallet. And you went and you took a guy out to dinner. Or you took somebody out to dinner and you didn't have the money to pay. And you saw a friend in the restaurant and you went over and asked him and he gave you the money. Think of the last time you ran out of gas. And you were going to have to walk. And somebody came through for you. Think of the last time you were in genuine peril and somebody did something good for you. Here's what happens then. That good deed becomes an energy deposit in your soul. It sits in there like a, like a big Snickers bar of energy. Right? Now what happens is, you will ha- it could be weeks later, months later, but someday you will drag into home, be completely exhausted, having spent yourself, on doing everything for everybody, so tired that when your spouse calls in, hey, what are you doing? I'm watching TV. Why are you watching that show? I know you don't like that show. Why are you watching? I'm too tired to move the remote. You know, I can't even change the buttons. I'm completely exhausted. But when that friend calls, no matter how tired you are, that friend calls and said, will you bail me out? I'm in trouble. Even if that's the state that you're in, your memory goes back to that snicker bar in the soul of that event and that good deed alivens you to do what you would normally never have done. Do you get it? That's the power of a good deed. The power of a good deed in your soul. Now what is strange about this work of Christ on the cross is what He says is, don't pay me. Here's how you pay me back for the good of the work that I've done in your soul. Remember, faith is a living upon the everlasting happiness purchased for us by Christ. What he says is that purchase that I made and that deposit, here's how I want you to pay me back. I want you to do something for David Savant. I want you to do something for Mr. Bennett. I want you to support SIE in a mission. I want you to call Terry and see if there's anything you can do for him. That that deposit of Christ 
is so powerful that when you tie into it, what he says is, I want you to do good to those who wish you ill. What he says about what I described earlier, if David bails me out and helps me and, I, and, and, and then I wait and do something for David, he just says that's earthly economy. It is when David is working for my demise and what I do is stay up late at night figuring out how I can help benefit David. That's the work of the cross. That's what it means to think and live upon the everlasting happiness of Christ for Christ has purchased for you. Not heaven. Not only an absence of hell. Not only heaven. But He has purchased for you the presence and the, and the love of His Father. He has purchased for you this notion that the Father says, I love you. I'm for you. So what you got is the feel of faith begins with an assessment there is too much. Then it's a reflection on the work of Christ for me. And I want to give you a picture of what that looks like. You are designed to lose energy. You're designed to drain. You're designed to not, not be able to go very long without nutrition and without um, air, for example. You're designed as a dependent being. So just like a battery, you're designed to drain. Right? Faith is, you are a dead battery. And this act of faith is, what happens when you have a dead battery? What do you do? David. What? You recharge it. What do you do initially if it's out in the driveway? If it's out here in the parking lot? Right? Who said it? What you say? Yeah, you ask for a jump. What you want is you want to look for a live battery, right? So then you pull those two cars next to each other, you get those batteries real close, and then what do you do? Attach the cables. What are the cables called? Jumper cables, right? So what you do is you have this dead battery, and it's draining, and you have these jumper cables, and what you do is you attach the dead. Then, then do you turn the jumper cables on? You ever heard of doing that, turning them on? You don't have to worry about turning them on. They don't have a switch, right? All you have to do is attach them. And then what happens? The energy from the full one runs to the dead one and the dead one receives exactly what it needs. As you are living your life, faith is that sense of, and if you are not a Christian, what a Christian when someone says become a Christian, what they're doing is asking you to take your jumper cables off of your money and off of your beauty and off of all those wonderful things that God has made. Take it off of alcohol. Take it off of sex addiction. Take it off of your own addiction to yourself, which is exhausting. And take those jumper cables off and attach them not to the wood of the cross, not to the Bible, not to heaven and not to not in to be in hell, but you take those jumper cables and you stick them right in the wounds of Christ and you attach them right into who He is, right into His flesh. And then what happens to you is you drink of the King of Kings. Your soul is energized by the very person and work of Christ. And then what He does in you is He loves what comes through is not some weak uh, jolt. What comes through is the very life of Christ. Now, how do we know how to do that is we love the Word. 
We love the law of God. We love the stuff that God has made. Ron Avery prayed today, what a wonderful thing it is to see what you have made so we can know who you are. The Puritans understood God by what He made, by the law of God, and then by the person of Jesus. And what I want to say to you is, when He says during communion, eat My flesh and drink My blood, that means everything that you do, you do from Him. I get my instruction from Him. Through Him, I get the energy to do what I've been instructed from Him. He gives me the energy to live the Christian life. And then unto Him, knowing that I will offer whatever I do that is empowered by Him back to Him for His glory and honor. The greatest practical theologian that I know, that I'm sure I will ever know, is my mother. Timothy Oliver, take out the trash. I don't want to. I was about six. I'm sure it lasted till I was probably 16. Just a little dialogue. Um, I don't want to. She would then say back, you can take out the trash with a good attitude or you can take out the trash with a bad attitude, but the trash is going out. What my, other, my mother understood, which is foreign to most people today, is the practice of doing good is good in and of itself. It will win the heart of the person practicing it to the beauty of what it is. But she also knew I was young and I was too dumb to understand the beauty of the privilege of what it is to take out the trash and be a part of a family and understand what it meant that God takes the trash out of my soul and brings in the beauty of the good. I, I wasn't mature enough to think about that. 19 years old, I come home. I'm a freshman at the University of Florida. I weigh about 235. I'm starting on, on the basketball team at the University of Florida, having a great time. Really think highly of myself, and things are coming together. We're having breakfast. Mom's cooked for about 13 people, and her highest goal for any of her children was not that we would preach her or any of those things. It's that we would make our beds. Her honest goal, and she was a complete, utter failure. Um... So I yelled into my mom as a 19-year-old, Mom, I made my bed for you today. She said, oh, that's sad. And I said, sad? How come that's sad? And she said, if you make your bed for me, you'll only make your bed while I'm around. But if you make your bed for the Lord, you'll make it every day. What an amazing theologian that her understanding... She was living upon the unseen, everlasting happiness purchased for her by Christ to have the privilege to make a bed. To have the privilege. My mom did a billion loads of laundry. And the clothes that she laundered, none of her children liked. And no one ever said thanks. And that was a crisis of faith. And she said, if I wait for these ne'er-do-wells to thank me. I'll never do it. But then she turned and she, she knew in her mind that the smile of God is on the most minuscule chore. And she loved doing chores for Him. This, this attachment happened to me yesterday. It has happened to all of you who are older, I am certain. Where in the pecking order of your friends, you become the one who has the tools. And none of them have them yet. 
but they have adopted you as a father where everything they have is theirs and everything you have is theirs. So I've, I've just, I am being overcome or overcoming uh, pancreatitis. I don't have much energy and, and so I'm trying to manage my energy. But one of the things I have to do is get out and expend more energy. And there's a dead tree that hangs over from my neighbor's yard in, so I want to go use my chainsaw. I don't think I've used it for two years because mainly my brother-in-laws have used it. Now you know what's going to happen. I think I'm going to expend energy by using a saw. All that is is you put this moving part on top of a piece of wood and it cuts through it. A lot of energy there. So I go to the saw. I begin to try to start it. It will not start. I look. There are there are a series of hoses that are needed to get the fuel to the machine so it will work. None of them are there. I don't know what my brother-in-law does with those things. I don't know why. But I'm sitting there on my porch, exhausted, in a crisis of faith. Because I'm moving towards, and you know how your heart works, I'm moving towards, you know what? I haven't used this thing the last 15 times it's been used. You know what? I'm going to have to pay to get it fixed. Once I get it fixed, I'm not going to let anyone use it. And then I think of the work of Christ for me. And I think, what a privilege that I have moved up the pecking order. And now people are using and breaking my stuff. And I thought of all my brothers and sisters, and I thought of all the people that are in my life who have stuff I can go break. You know, and I got really excited about humbling myself and getting back over in that other column. Right? But I was alive again that Jesus says He is faithful to me. He is attached. When I am faithless, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, when we are faithless, He is faithful. He is full of love for us. And He has attached Himself to us. And I can drink deep of Him. And so I just sat there, this weird, fat, 47-year-old man with a bad pancreas, exhausted, drinking in the wonder of Gospel love and opening up my garage and looking at all the stuff I had for all my neighbors. Right? And then I, uh, my neighbor, one neighbor got broken into and it's because her yard looks like a jungle. And I, and I got to go buy a hedger. I don't even have a hedge. I got to go buy a hedger because one of the young guys that, wants, that has energy to go do it, which I don't have, right? I can at least supply him a hedger. So I fought against wicked, ugly, isolation, self-consumed, keeping my stuff to myself. And I went out and spent money so that I could give it to him. And I said, if you break it, please hurry and bring it back. Don't worry, I'll get it fixed. i got to leave you with this one. Faithfulness. You, uh, I'll tell you the way my mother told me. I had been... Um, I... I um, I have the privilege of being friends with people who are kind enough to come see me when they're in a crisis of faith. It is the highest privilege of my life to have people who are in trauma come to see me. And what I will say is I know Jesus is the answer. I know God has the solution. And I know one thing. I don't know what the answer is. I know who it is. But I can sit with you while we go through this. Whatever it is, I'm in. I'll be with you. 
So this lady was meeting with me and she was going on and on and she was building her case that her life, the unseen everlasting happiness of her life had to do with her husband asking her what you want to do. Honey, what would you like to do? I'd like to do that with you. But she said what is essential. She argued and argued. My husband never asked me what I want to do. My husband never does what I want. My husband never. And she's building this case and building this case. I mean, finally, I'm ready. I said, bring him by. I'll beat him. Right? I mean, what? Uh, and I'm going to have breakfast with my mom and dad. This was when my dad was still alive. And I'm going to have breakfast. This was probably three or four years ago before my mom had Alzheimer's. And, and I'm right. And I'm, it's always a kind of a romantic time of reflecting on the wonder of, of my mom and dad as I get to go see him. And I'm thinking, now wait a second. My mom is the most wonderful, happy, joyful lady I've ever known. Um, I never remember my dad. I've only known him for 47 years. I never remember my dad turning to her and saying, Dad, uh, honey, what would you like to do tonight? I mean, I, and I, when I say never, I mean never. I mean, I don't ever remember that. And I never remember. Now, I caught them after they were already 40 and they had a lot of time invested. So this isn't early in their faith walk. But I never remember my dad saying that. And I'm not saying that I support that men should not do what their wives want at all. But I'm saying I'm in a unique situation where this lady is saying, if this man doesn't do what I want, I can't live any longer. I can't stand him. I cannot return love to him if he, if he doesn't say to me, what do you want and do what I want? And I thought if that was true, my mom would have had a horrible life. So I sit down with my mom and I said, Mom, I never remember Dad looking at you and asking you what you wanted. I never remember that. Did that ever happen, Mom? And she said, oh, I, Timothy Oliver, I did not need your dad to do what I wanted. And I said, so you didn't need that? And that's when she grabbed me by the hand. And, you know, and so you got this little mouthy old, you know, woman closer to a raisin than she is a person, you know, stroking this big, huge Goliath of a knucklehead. And um, and uh, and she said, oh, Timothy Oliver, I didn't need your dad to do what I wanted. And I said, you didn't need that. Oh, she said, I was desperate for him. And I said, really, why? And she said, because once I attached myself to the infinite love of God for me in Jesus, Timo, I'm just this small little cup of finite need. And God is an ocean of wondrous love for me that when that infinite began to fill up that little cup, my biggest concern was, what do I do with the excess? And then I realized that God had given me your dad. And she said, if you think of your heart like a pitcher, you should have seen it's different. If you think of your heart like a pitcher, it's got that little spout on it. And she said, that thing is where you point it. And when you point it, that's where the overflow goes. And I was so great. It was so great when I found out that your dad was the one I was supposed to point that at. I didn't need your dad to deliver anything to me. I needed your dad to be the spot where I was going to deliver the everything that I was gaining from Jesus. Faith, attachment, fullness, the finite, being attached to the infinite. 
How do you increase your faith? Let people borrow your stuff. How do you increase your faith? Give away the money that you have that you're trusting so that you can go back to being the fun of when you were first married and you didn't know where money was coming from. How do you increase your faith? Set up an appointment where you're going to try to meet with somebody and help them with their problems and you don't know what the solution is before you go in. How do you increase your faith? Carry the weight of more and more and more and more and more and more and more people's lives. The way to increase your faith is to always be seeking out the opportunity of putting yourself in a predicament that will require you to attach yourself to the infinite love of God. Now some of you have already, some of you ladies have already done that by marrying jerks. And so you have yourself in a moment by moment, forever crisis of faith. Good thinking. Right? I'll leave you, leave you with this as a boy growing up. I would listen to my dad listen to tapes. And there's this one favorite tape. We, he, we didn't hear much good preaching in our service, so my brother would bring tapes from college, and there was this one marvelous, marvelous, marvelous black preacher from Texas that would preach, and my dad had every one of his tapes. And his favorite sermon was, Yes, you can. Mr. Bennett, yes, you can. David Savant, yes, you can. Mr. Crosby, yes, you can. My dad would listen to that tape and we boys would go to sleep hearing this man just yell out, yes, you can. You can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, you can. Attach yourself to the unseen, everlasting happiness purchased for you by Christ and all the necessaries thereunto. Christ's name, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the privilege. Uh, you know, it's just one of my favorite inventions. When you came up with faith, I just beat all. I mean, the imputation is my top idea where I get what went for Christ went for me. What went for me now goes for Him. That sense of substitution, that's the best. But faith to tie in to the good work of Christ that is a perpetual, infinite good work that for all eternity, at the end of eternity, if there could be an end of eternity, it would be as if we had yet said nothing about the wonder of Your work for us on the cross and we will start eternity all over again and it will never become flattery. It will always be true singing, true rejoicing. Because that is how good that good work is. Father, alive in us today. That we would take out the trash for Your glory. That we would make our beds for Your glory. That we would uh, do acts of kindness and service to our friends. That we would engage in conversations for Your glory. And all of that because we are dead batteries attached to a live battery for all eternity. In Christ's name, Amen.